bioethics then can take a look at this and say, how do we eliminate provider biases? How do we educate health professionals so that these biases then don't create racial disparities in healthcare? The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Hi, welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. Uh, and this is a very special episode for several reasons. One, it's our, our first episode of season two. So thanks to all our listeners for sticking with us and coming back for season two. And also because of our guest today. So our, our, our guest today is Dr. Keisha Ray, uh, who is an assistant professor at the McGovern Medical School at University of Texas Health Science Center, which is located in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Ray's research focuses on racial disparities in health and healthcare and justice and biomedical enhancement, amongst other areas that we'll talk about today. And she also serves as associate editor of the American Journal of Bioethics online blog, which, so you know, is a fascinating resource for accessible writing on pressing issues in bioethics and medical ethics. Um, also just wanted to note that Dr. Ray is gonna be joining us uh, at the Kegley Institute for Ethics and COVID-19, a moderated conversation at 6 p.m. Pacific on September 10th. The event is free and open to the public via Zoom. And it is part of a new series the Institute is doing. It's the Kaiser Permanente Bioethics and Medical Humanities Speaker Series. So we're super excited for this event. And I also want to note, last but not least, we're joined today by a very special guest interviewer, Brittany Johnson, who is a senior philosophy major from our hometown, CSU Bakersfield, and is also a KIE student fellow uh, for this year, too. He'll be working on some projects for the Institute and the campus and the community. So Dr. Ray and Brittany, uh, welcome to the Ethicist Corner. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. Hello. Wonderful to have you here. So um, there's so much to talk about today. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, uh, so Dr. Ray, um, I want to ask you, first of all, um, where are you from? And, and can you tell us a little bit about your journey to a career in bioethics? Sure. Um, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Um, my journey to bioethics is this sort of weird right place, right time, meeting the right people kind of story. So um, early on, went to a health careers high school, decided health profession, not for me, not really into the practice of medicine. Um, went to college, went to Baylor University as an English major, thought that's something else that I like to do, started taking upper level English classes and found myself not going to them. And I randomly saw a flyer for an intro to philosophy class, needed a credit, took it, fell in love and decided philosophy is, is what I'm going to do. Um, then I went to, it's a, a, an institute called Pixie. Started at Penn State, if you know Pixie well, yeah, it's for underrepresented groups in philosophy to get them to pursue grad school. My American philosophy professor gave me a flyer for it when I was, I was graduating college a year early. He gave me a flyer, Stuart Rosenbaum, and he said, you should do this. And I applied, and even though I was graduating and not a junior that they normally take, uh, they said, sure, come on in, we'd love to have you. And there, one of the guest speakers was Anita Silver, um, who recently passed. She was a professor um, in bioethics and disability ethics. And over lunch, we're talking, and she said, you know, what are your interests? And I said, I like medicine, 
I don't want to practice it. I like philosophy. I wish I could, you know, combine philosophy and medicine. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life now because I can't find anything for those interests. And she said, bioethics. And I said, huh? <laughs> Never heard of that term. I don't know what that is. And I went home, started researching. I get an email from Anita saying, hey, I know a bioethicist at University of Utah. You should talk to her. Her name is Leslie Francis. The next day, Leslie Francis said, come to grad school in Utah. We can work together. And I said, sure. And then the top bioethicists were there and I was working with them and fell in love with it. And you know, the rest is history. Here I am. <laughs> so this is a small world moment, right? Because I, so I used to work at Penn State at the Rock Institute and helped organize Pixie for a few years. And Brittany uh, uh, was accepted to Pixie last summer, or this summer. Yay! That's great. I'm also on the, on the, um, on the board there at Pixie. So that's even great to know. I, I sort of got you know, now I'm on the other side of applications and stuff. So that's awesome. That's so, yeah, Pixie is, is a great resource. And I will always, always owe, owe a lot to Pixie for my career. And for our listeners, so Pixie is a philosophy and an inclusive key. And it's really kind of focused specifically on, um, well, diversifying the discipline of philosophy, right? And kind of both in terms of the canon, the people practicing philosophy, who is a philosopher, all these central questions. So a super influential program, as obviously we're hearing about today. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned in your response to, you know, kind of how you, a little bit about your journey to bioethics, but for the common listener, I imagine a lot of people are asking the question that you mentioned. So what, what is bioethics and, and what, what does it aim to achieve? Right. So, you know, honestly, that's a question that I think about very often because as soon as I think I know the answer, um, there's something that changes my mind, whether it's a new technology or a new intervention or some social or political happening that kind of makes me rethink it. So how I think about it though is, I think about it as this sort of ethical inquiry, this ethical exploration, but a very specific kind of ethical inquiry, looking at, I'd say, topics or issues that are at this intersection of um, health, well-being, um, life and all those things that affect our value of life in general, um, medicine, healthcare. So at the intersection of all these topics, um, we get sort of dilemmas, right, that affect all of human life. And I think bioethics is right at this intersection of all these topics and the dilemmas that they create. And it gives us the tools to sort of to sort of reason through these dilemmas, right? To sort of uh, think about it. It doesn't always give a lot of answers, which I guess the philosopher part in me kind of likes, but right. it gives us a way to, to think about it, right? Um, a way to approach it. I don't like that word, but it gives us a way to approach the issues that come from looking at these topics and how they all mesh. So whether that's um, new medical technology, whether that's some socio-political event, all these issues and topics that can affect human life, affect our value of human life, the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about medicine and healthcare, which are so essential to our well-being, bioethics is there saying, okay, now what are the ethical issues here and how can we talk about it? How can we reason? How can we upload, uplift human life and in a way that makes it 
you know, in a way that honors life, because I think ultimately that is what bioethics is supposed to do. Bioethics is supposed to uphold the dignity of human life. So no matter what kinds of definitions I hear about bioethics, I think that's one that I always try to hold on to is upholding this dignity of human life. Now, what that means for different bioethicists, that's, you know, that's where you get into these dilemmas, because that can mean so many different things for so many different bioethicists. But I think ultimately that's that should be the goal and that should be what bioethics does. So let me ask you, because I think, you know, one of the things I can I can think about, you know, a listener asking, because I've actually gotten this question too about other areas of ethics. It's like, well, but what is a specific example that might illustrate kind of these ethical issues in health or wellness and medical care? Because isn't medicine just about, look, there's a there's a problem, you try and treat it as best you can and you're successful or you're not. So where's the ethics entering? Can you give us kind of an example that you think kind of crystallizes this a bit? Sure. Um, so one that I like to think about is, um, so my area is racial disparities in health and healthcare, right? But one of the issues that you start to see when you start to see, look at the different, one of the issues that you start to see when you look at the differences and health outcomes for black and white people is you start to see that the issues don't start in the examination room. They don't start in the clinical setting, right? So the reason why we have such high black maternal mortality rates, for instance, why black women die at three and four times the number of white women during and soon after childbirth is partially because of what happens to black women before they enter the healthcare setting. So bioethics is particularly helpful at looking at, let's talk about what happens before they enter life. Let's look at the inequities there. Let's look at the dilemmas there. And then let's see how they, how these dilemmas now create this perfect storm of a situation where we have black women dying after um, sooner after childbirth. So we can look at say provider biases, right? We can look at it and say, hmm, one of the issues why we have racial disparities is because um, some healthcare providers have these different attitudes about black people and the way they think about them then translates into their behaviors with them. Maybe that means not listening to them when they say, hey, something's not right. Maybe that means recommending um, black people have their legs amputated more um, from diabetes complications than white patients. Maybe that means um, black babies die more often when their providers are white and less often when their providers are black, right? So when we look at all these disparities, we can partially see some provider bias influences this. So bioethics then can take a look at this and say, how do we eliminate provider biases? How do we educate health professionals so that these biases then don't create racial disparities in healthcare? So I think bioethics comes in and says, let's look at these inequities, let's look at these injustices, and then now how do we minimize these effects on the black population in health and healthcare? So I think bioethics come in there. And now that's one way to think about it. Another more traditional way um, is to think about it in another topic that you may hear very frequently in bioethics is um, right to die, right? If you are terminally ill, do you have the, is it ethical, if you are terminally ill, is it ethical for you to ask medicine to assist you in ending your life? So things like um, physician-assisted death, right? 
is it ethical for a physician who takes an oath to uphold life to help a terminally ill person in their life? Or should they say, my job is to uphold life and that means to keep you alive no matter what? So this is where I was getting at when I said, I think the goal of bioethics is to have dignity for life, but bioethics are gonna think very differently about what that means. So in this case, someone may say, you're terminally ill, the most autonomous decision that you can make is to end your life. And another bioethicist will say, that's absolutely beyond the goals of medicine. Medicine is supposed to keep you alive and it's supposed to uphold your dignity by keeping you alive. So this is how you can see this dilemma play out in a very frank way with physician-assisted death and then a kind of nuanced way with provider bias and racial disparities in healthcare. I had the privilege of reading some of your journal entries on the blog. Um, and I, it's just really cool to meet you, like see your face. Cause like, because oh, <laughs> I was reading it and I was like reading through several of them. And I thought it was really cool about the whole rebellion against traditional bioethics. So I wanted to ask you where you feel that you personally fall in that line of questioning. Are you more of the nuanced side or are you more of the traditional? Cause I saw in your blog post, you were talking about you had to create a table because the bioethics, the traditional bioethics don't make room at their table. So it's like a lot of different ones that kind of branch out. So I wanted to know where you find yourself personally. Sure. So I wrote this blog about black bioethics because I felt that especially in this time right now, right, where the world is sort of having this reckoning with social justice, with racial justice, and more people are paying attention. And bioethics is the perfect place to have these conversations, but yet we don't have them enough. Um, it's not that we're never having them, um, but bioethicists, black, white, whatever race, have been having conversations about race, but it's mostly, hey, why don't we talk about race enough, right? It's mostly calling out the field and saying, there's all these topics related to this group that we are just not discussing to our detriment. Um, so black bioethics is really this way of saying, hey, all these skills that bioethicists have and the topics that we talk about, if we're gonna be true to our creed, true to our goals and our aims of bioethics, we have to talk about the social and cultural and political issues that face black people and their health. So for instance, right now, there's not enough talk about police brutality. But if you go to a public, uh, if you go to a public health school or talk to public health officials, they have been talking about race much more than bioethicists because they see it as a public health issue. They see racial injustice in all of its forms, including police brutality, as a threat to Black people's lives, and that is one of those things that bioethics is supposed to do too. It's supposed to say, hey, if our values are about upholding human life and there's this threat to human life, now we should at least be talking about this. Not everything in bioethics has to be a dilemma, right? Make that very clear. It's not always, let's talk about the pros and cons or the risk and benefits. Sometimes it's calling out something's wrong and saying, this is why it's wrong, right? There's not a dilemma about, uh, should we kill black people because they're black, right? That's not really the dilemma, but we can talk about what are these threats to human life, including um, racially motivated killings by police and, and by civilians, right? So that's where 
I think bioethics has a little bit to learn um, from black bioethics is if you're studying uh, bioethics, oftentimes we talk about, you know, vulnerable populations, particularly in research. I do a lot of research ethics and it's very clear about what populations are vulnerable. And it's usually groups that have been made marginalized, have been made vulnerable by some institution or systemic force. Black people are one of those groups, right? We have such a unique relationship with medicine because of historical abuses and current abuses that it's really to bioethics detriment that there isn't more attention to these abuses, more attention to um, the historic and current inequities because it definitely threatens human, um, sorry, it, it threatens black lives right now if we don't talk about these historical and current abuses against black health. Um, so yeah, so black bioethics is really saying, hey, you wanna fulfill your mission bioethics? Well then start paying attention to these threats to black human lives. You know, just a plug here too, like this, this American Journal of Bioethics is online uh, and is free. So these blog posts that we're, that we're referencing here, um, highly recommend for our listeners, if you're interested in medical ethics issues or this conversation today, check out that blog. They're short, accessible pieces. Um, you don't need to have a PhD in philosophy to, to grasp them. They're very accessible and I, I've been enjoying them myself. So, I, and I, there's a couple of thoughts, you know, I mean, from Brittany's question and, and, and Dr. Ray from your response that come to mind for me. I mean, one, as you're talking, it sounds like, you know, part of what bioethics is doing, right, is, is saying, look, like the ethical issues don't just start in the operating room or the visiting room, right? It, it's, you need to be, if you're talking about ethical issues and health outcomes, you need to be thinking about social political issues, factors of race and, and bias, implicit bias in healthcare, um, structural issues that kind of inform who is treated and who isn't, how they're treated when they're being seen. So it seems like there's broadening kind of the ethical view, first of all, right? And second to that, you know, one of your, Again, one of your blog posts that I was a fan of on this the same platform that I thought was really interesting and really insightful was about talking about black bioethics, but then also you were connecting racism, health, and protests against police brutality. And you were talking about protests against police brutality um, and the, the deaths of innocent black persons, right, as health issues, you know, bioethical issues, not just like Social political, issues or, social political issues or police issues. So can you say more about how, how police brutality and the protests we're seeing are actually can be seen as like as health related issues? Sure, so one, um, just thinking about, again, if we take just the basic tenet of bioethics is uphold human life, the dignity of human life, protect vulnerable populations, um, in medicine, in healthcare research, and biomedical research, if those are just the basic tenets of bioethics, when you have a such a large scale occurrence like police brutality jeopardizing the health and well-being of a population, um, even if it's equitable, but right now it's inequitable, but even if it were, even if uh, police brutality was something that affected everyone, it would still be unjust. So for me, bioethics to not talk about police brutality or to talk about it very minimally or in passing is, is just not enough because police brutality is a public health issue. And these protests are this response to, it's a people sort of getting fed up and saying, hey, 
look at the ways that we are made unwell. What are you going to do about it? Because it's not just actual physical happenings of police brutality. It's also the psychological, the emotional effects of those who experience it and then those who watch it. So for me, the protests are this sort of all-encompassing um, health risk in itself. One, people are protesting in a pandemic, right? So that tells you right there how dire it is that people in large groups are saying, I won't go to a bar, but I'm going to go to this protest because I need to say something's not right with what's happening in the world, right? So just the, the fact of, of having justice not being done and creating protests and having those protests occur during a pandemic is a health issue in itself. But then also, it's a health issue for experiencing it, right? So right now, um, there's lots of research about how just watching racism happen, experiencing racism, but then also the, the videos of Black deaths, right? The, the um, videos on social media of these arrests or these very violent arrests, how these can cause the same kinds of symptoms as PTSD as a soldier or someone who goes through something very traumatic um, the same kind of symptoms that they would have. So experiencing racism and watching racism is also a health risk. It's not just the police brutality aspect of it. So for me, police brutality, protests, all of it is just this double whammy of threats to black health. And so that's why I think we have to sort of, we have to sort of, um, make bioethics listen. We, we just have to do a better job in, in bioethics. And, you know, there's, there's only so many black bioethicists and there's only so many bioethicists in general who are interested in this topic and who write on it. So there's just, there's more workload to go around than there are people who can do it. So then that becomes another health issue. I know um, during this time I've had to take my own breaks because working on these topics and then seeing the topics on the TV, um, it's, it can be stressful. So it, it becomes a, you know, a health risk for even uh, black bioethicists, right? So we have to do things that take care of our own well-being as well. But yeah, these police brutality, and then it also makes it kind of hard to talk about other things, right? So like, I study biomedical enhancement, things that make us go beyond human, whether that's medical technology, medications, whatever, these interventions that can make us better than human. I like to use that term like a lot of other enhancement scholars. But it's like, how can I talk about things that uplift the elite to an even better or an even more elite status when you have so many people here who are not even at the basic level of health, well-being, education, income level. So it kind of, it for me at least, it kind of makes it hard to do these other things, these other research areas that I love so much and think are so fascinating and interesting because, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about well, how, what makes the elite more elite, but there's these other people who are saying, please just don't kill us. And if you do, let there be justice in our justice system. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you, this work that you're doing, you talk about, you know, bioethics, um, needed to pay greater attention to the, to the issues that we're talking about today, first of all, um, and not solely focusing on tr exclusively on issues of, you know, say physician-assisted suicide or abortion or, or stem cells. Those are important issues, but also recognizing the, well, the, the way in which race is a social determinant of health and the ethical issues around racial disparities in healthcare and the police brutality issues you're talking about here. Who needs to hear what you're saying? Is it, is it medical professionals? Is it 
changing the curriculum in medical schools. So physicians and nurse practitioners and others are, are thinking about these issues and health administrators who, you know, it's beneficial for everybody, but, but if you could choose kind of the audience who's going to hear this podcast and think about things a little bit differently, you know, who would you start with? Who would you send it to first? Um, the two people I would say probably equal importance in all of this is one, uh, medical school, nursing school, all kind of health professions, educators, those who are doing the actual teaching and those that are creating the curriculum. Sometimes they're not the same people, but the way that we teach has to be differently. I can't be just, you know, statistically black women are four times more likely to die than white women in childbirth. Moving on, you know, it has to be why? What's our role in it as medical professionals? What's the institution of medicine's role in it? How can we be better? It can't be just a relaying of the facts, right? That has to be a little bit better. And then honestly, the editors of medical and academic journals who accept papers, if we accept papers that are written on why Black people have hypertension more than white people, and there's no discussion of systemic racism in that paper, that paper should not be published. If we're going to talk about why Black children, particularly Black boys, have higher rates of asthma, and there's no talk of environmental racism, that paper shouldn't be published. But too many times, I'll get asked to peer review a paper that's about these topics, and they don't mention racism. You cannot talk about racial disparities in health outcome and not talk about the systemic features that create it, racism, provider bias. I mean, so that's where I think um, there has to be, there has to be some real change. So medical educators will change the actual practice of medicine, but editors of journals have a real, um, they have a, a really good position to say, how can we change the research part? How can we change what gets published? How can we change how academics talk about racial disparities in healthcare? And that starts with what gets published. As professors, we all know how important publications are. That's how you get jobs. That's how you get promotions. Um, that's how you get um, all of the currency of the profession. But if you're going to do this work, it should be done right. So the peer review process, editors should demand that people who are peer reviewing, that they look for these issues in papers that are about racial disparities in healthcare. And editors should say, if this isn't up to standards, then it's not going to be published. So those are the two fronts that I would um, approach with this, with this kind of topic. When you were talking about the medical educators, um, that really stood out to me, especially since I have recently learned about bioethics and that was because of Dr. Burroughs. Um, I wanted to ask you what you thought about the racial disparity that's playing right now in the deaths for COVID-19. I know a lot of populations are being more exposed and therefore a lot more people um, in the Latin, Latino, Latina, Latina X, um, black communities, they are not being tested as regularly. And when they are tested, they are always going back positive and they usually have more severe illnesses, um, complications basically due to coronavirus. And I feel now as a senior philosophy student undergrad with hopes to be a PhD, um, my, my little brain was just tumbling around with the idea that maybe it's because they don't trust doctors in the first place, which is why they aren't going to get tested. Um, but what is also some of your, your insight, Dr. Ray? Sure. So you may have seen this headline in response to COVID-19 and the uh, disparities in who's getting infected with the virus. Um, 
you'll hear a headline or you'll see a headline and it will say something like COVID-19 is revealing disparities or COVID-19 is really showing inequities. And what they won't say was kind of a pet peeve of mine, going back to what we saying, what I, what I want to see in academic articles, when they say COVID-19 is affecting Latinx people, indigenous people and black people at disproportionate rates, they'll say, huh, it's because of inequities and social determinants of health. But again, they won't say racism. They'll just say, well, they have unequal access to um, safe housing or unequal access to healthcare. But why do they have unequal access to healthcare? Why do they have unequal access to safe housing? because of institutional and systemic racism. So for instance, one reason why testing was lacking in a lot of communities of color is because of testing sites. Testing sites originally, when we were just learning about the virus, were not located in predominantly Latinx, indigenous, or um, black communities. They had to travel far. Transportation is a social determinant of health. We just take it for granted that everyone has a car or we take it for granted that public transportation goes to all neighborhoods. A lot of black neighborhoods, there is no transportation, uh, public transportation, or public transportation is only certain hours. Um, even Lyft and Uber, right, they don't go to a lot of predominantly black or indigenous communities. And if they do, they charge higher rates than going to white suburban neighborhoods. That's another issue with transportation. So yes, it's partly that Black people um, and other people of color have a trust issue relationship with medicine. One, that's probably, that's rightfully, you know, so that they do. I mean, we, uh, medicine doesn't have the best history. So whenever people talk about uh, Black people are the number one group that don't trust medicine, I say, yeah, but let's look at why. It's not just these, um, you know, these old wives tales, or it's not a superstition. It's we have concrete facts about why Black people should be suspicious of their doctors and should be suspicious of other health professions. But I think it's a, it's a deeper issue about why these communities aren't getting tested and why they're higher rates of infection. And it's because of a lack of access to certain social determinants, but racism plays a part there too. Um, you also have to think about when um, a lot of the states had their lockdowns, and only grocery stores or pharmacies or gas stations were open. Look at who's working those jobs, the jobs that can't be done from home. Um, you know, I'm a professor, I've been, I've been at home since March, right? But I'm privileged to be able to be in that position to teach my classes from home, complete my work from home. But there are a lot of groups who are working these essential jobs who cannot work from home. And if you look at the race makeup, they're indigenous people, they're Latinx people, they're black people. So if you're on the front lines, you're risking your health, you're risking the health of the people that live in your home, anyone you come into contact with, because you're considered essential and you're working jobs that don't have health insurance or you don't get paid time off so you keep working or have low wage jobs so you need to keep working. So you also have to think about how systemic uh, racism plays a part in who's working and who's considered essential during a pandemic who is unable to stay home and ride out a pandemic, but who has to go on the front lines and work to keep grocery store shelves stocked and gas stations full of gas and groceries and whatnot. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit deeper than just these groups don't trust medicine. It's more of look at how they lack these social determinants of health that make it harder for them to get tested and treated for the virus. So you know, A good this, question. 
as I want to follow up on that question, it's you know, really you know, making me think about the education question and you know, how do you, I mean, again, it seems it kind of comes back to this, that you need to look beyond one data point to understand the broader social issues that are impacting, in this case, persons of color and racial disparities in, in healthcare right, outcomes um, around COVID. How do you get people to take that broader view? Um, I mean, part of it's education, but you know, are there particular resources that you think are, are good for that or particular writing or, you know, other insights or tools that you think can help, whether, whether it's a practicing, practicing medical professional or an everyday citizen, right, who's, who's not kind of grasping this broader point. Are there, are there tools or ways of explaining that beyond what you've already done, which has been very clear and powerful, but uh, are there other things that you think about that, that can help, you know, people who aren't already seeing that to maybe understand those issues a bit better? Sure. Um, so one of the social determinants of health that I always say is sort of the, the go-to social determinant of health, and that's housing. So housing, where you live, your zip code tells us so much about your health. Um, housing tells us if you have access to a, a good school, tells us if, if you have access to grocery stores, pharmacy. Your housing tells us um, if you have access to non-polluted air, non-polluted water, it tells us if you have adequate heating in your home. It tells us if you ha uh, if your home is free from um, light and noise pollution, which can affect sleep. Your housing also tells us um, if you live with a safe number of people in your home, right? If you have too many people in your home, that can affect your health. So for me. Housing is the, is the one social determinant that can tell us so much about health and so much about your access to other social determinants of health. And unfortunately, access to housing is also fraught with, with legal racism, um, institutional racism. And so the book that I like to um, recommend for that is The Color of Law. Um, that is a really good book. It, it details the history of racist policies that put black people in certain neighborhoods and white people in other neighborhoods and a lack of resources in black neighborhoods and an abundance of resources in white neighborhoods that um, things like ghettos and projects that are predominantly filled with white people or Latinx people or indigenous people, it wasn't just like poof, it happened. It was redlining, it was gentrification, it was housing policies, it was banks, it was mortgage lenders, it was people who said, we're going to make it so that white people can have better access to things that neighborhood determines, like education, um, access to healthcare. So Color of Law is, is a um, Richard Rothstein, that's a really good book. Um, and yeah, you know, I think Part of the issue too with looking at racial disparities in healthcare from an all encompassing view is that there are so many different resources that you have to look at. So um, um, Dana Matthew Bowen has a book out and she looks at racial disparities from a law perspective, right? That's her background. Um, Rothstein, The Color of Law looks at it from a housing aspect. And so there's, there's all these different books that look at it from different aspects and there's not, there's not one central one yet. There's Dorothy Roberts. Um, there is, um, let me think, Dorothy Roberts is, is sort of one of the go-to people in bioethics that talks about black health. Um, so, but they're all again, very siloed. They talk about different aspects of it. And 
today I just found out that I will be writing a book that will be perfect for this. So that would be great. <laughs> wow, um, you know, I, I just got a, um, a contract with Oxford to write a book on this exact topic that will look at all these different racial disparities, but looking at it from all of the social determinants of health and how they intersect to create racial disparities. Um, so hopefully that one day will be a source for people to look at. Um, yeah, so hopefully, thanks. Hopefully one day um, that will be, but I think right now there are some people doing really good work in bioethics and in black bioethics. It's just a matter of making it more um, encompassing. I think that's, that's the best word. Understood. All right, so this has been such a fascinating conversation, Dr. Ray, thanks so much. And again, those whose interests are, are piqued by this podcast, which I'm sure is many of you, please mark your calendars for September 10th, 6 p.m., free and open on Zoom for ethics and COVID-19. Dr. Ray will be a featured panelist in that conversation. Um, for now, uh, of course, we have our tradition at the Ethicist Corner of our lightning rounds, uh, which is five questions we'd like to close out the pod with to help our listeners get to know our guests a little bit better. And uh, Brittany is going to do the honors for us today uh, with our lightning round. So Brittany, when you're, when you're ready, uh, take us away. Okay, thank you. And thank you again, Dr. Ray, for speaking. Um, it was really great just to hear you talk. I was, it was an honor to speak with you. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> oh, thanks. I can't wait to write it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the lightning round questions is post-quarantine, where's the first place you'd like to travel? Well, the pandemic canceled my trip to Dubai and Japan, so I got to get those back. I got to redeem myself and and I got, yeah, I got that flight money back. So I'm going to use it again to buy more tickets. <laughs> yes. COVID has stopped a lot of travel plans. It, it's actually why I didn't go to Pixie this past summer because. Oh, man. Summer, yeah, because of oh, COVID, so. pandemic. <laughs> I try to be grateful. I, it could be worse, but it doesn't mean you're not sad. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, okay, if you could have dinner with any two people, past or present, who would they be and why? Ooh, um, Michelle Obama first off. I just, she's just great. I just love her. Um, who else? Um, Kurt Cobain. Nice. Yeah, I would, yeah, I think that would be so interesting. Yeah, you know, time travel, 90 Seattle, any day. Exactly. <laughs> I want to wear the flannel. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so now that you live and work in Texas and you're from Texas, what is the most Texas thing about you? And I'm saying this as a fellow Texas girl. I was raised in Frisco, so. Ooh, the most Texas <laughs> thing about me is um, I have a lot of Texas stuff. Okay. I have Texas earrings. I have the outline of Texas tattooed on my foot. I have Texas, um, you know, the state of Texas symbols in my office, in my home. You know, I say y'all, that's <laughs> pretty Texan. <laughs> I use that in formal settings. Um, so that's pretty, that's pretty Texan. <laughs> yes, definitely. I have a longhorn skull in my bedroom, so. That's Texas. Texas. All right there, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> If you could choose between the power of invisibility or flight, which would you choose and why? I would do invisibility because I feel like you can, there's no limits to that one. If I want to fly, I'm invisible. I can just get on a plane and no one would know, right? I feel like it gives me all the other powers. So, and then also maybe I just like Harry Potter. So I think invisibility cloak. So I'm going to go with invisibility. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. And then what was the last movie you saw and did you like it? 
Ooh, um, oh, I watched The Old Guard on Netflix with Charlize Theron, and yeah, I liked it a lot. That's right up my, I love sci-fi and fantasy and all of that, and it was, it was pretty cool. Action scenes, yes, actually, yeah, I rewatched the action scenes a couple of times, so yeah. <laughs> all right, those are the lightning round questions. Thank Thanks. you so much. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, for for being here and Norma, thanks for your producing skills as always, for guiding us along the path. Um, and again, uh, looking forward to seeing everybody September 10th. And Dr. Ray, thanks so much for your time and your insight. Thank you, this was awesome. To hear more from Dr. Ray and other bioethics experts, please join the Kegley Institute of Ethics and Kaiser Permanente for Ethics and COVID-19, a moderated conversation on September 10th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. The event is free and open to the public and is part of the Kaiser Permanente Bioethics and Medical Humanities Speaker Series. You can find the Zoom link for this event at ccb.edu slash KIE or by following us on social media. Thanks for joining us for season two. We have an incredible lineup of guests and we hope you keep on listening.